I feel like a K-pop star up here. I've never, <laughs> never used one of these, these before. I would make a really bad K-pop star. I mean, I'm not Korean. Um, the elders are preparing a little routine for next week, just so you can look for that. Sorry, I don't, I just, I don't, I, okay, let's get, get back down to the Bible here. Um, <clears throat> so let me, let me uh, clearly I need to pray here, so let me, let me uh, pray for the sermon. Lord Jesus, I pray that what I would say would be true, would be accurately representing your word. I pray that all of us uh, would be blessed by your word. I pray that we'd all be drawn near, nearer to you, that we would know you better. I pray that in Christ's name, amen. amen. So uh, my name is Matt Neal. Uh, you may be surprised to know that I'm an elder here. Um, it, it, I've had kind of a strange journey uh, lately. Uh, during COVID, I was actually on sabbatical for a year. Uh, away from the session, and before that, I was on some other sabbaticals. I think I set the PCA record for most sabbaticals from the session, and uh, the reason why is I was going through a, some really difficult times. Uh, I don't know if you've ever reached a point in your life where you're carrying so much and there's just so much disappointment, you know, things didn't go like you thought they would, and it gets to a point where you start to, I don't know, I started to get bitter, my heart was darkened, um, I was distant from God, I, I started to believe that, uh, well, I started to wonder if other things were better than God. Um, I don't know if any of you have gone through a time like that. Um, and so it's, it was important for me, whenever this happens, I really need to go back to the beginning and re-evangelize myself. Um, you know, I, was, I think it's good to ask every once in a while when you're drifting, why am I a Christian? I mean, that seems like something you ought to have an answer for. In fact, we're required to have an answer for it. First Peter 3.15 says we should always be ready to give an answer, uh, a reason for the hope that we had. And I was at a point where I had forgotten those reasons. So, um, so I go back to um, scriptures like Psalm 19. It's one of my favorite psalms. I, feel, I sort of feel like Psalm 19 is a uh, gospel tract for the Old Testament in some sense. It really kind of leads you back to your first love, you know, why you signed up for this in the first place, what the Holy Spirit originally brought to your heart. Let me just read, we should probably read the psalm, so I'll read it. Um, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and the words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his, his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. That's the first section, okay? 
Think of that as if you want, you know, a three-point sermon, you know, creation, law, redemption. Sorry, those don't start with the same letter, which I think you're supposed to do, but those are sort of the three sections. So that's creation. Now let's read the, the law part, starting in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Then the last part, redemption. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's a powerful psalm, I think. Let's go back uh, to, the, to the first uh, first part of that, this is a psalm of David. Um, no one knows who the choir master is. Some think it's God. Some think it's, it's a, there's some historical figure whose name escapes me, who, but really people don't know. <clears throat> so it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Now, when it says there, day pours out speech, the, the Hebrew is actually that, uh, conveys a message of a gushing spring. Okay, so the day, if you just look outside, there's a gushing spring pouring out God's speech to you. God is screaming at you, okay? Uh, if you look out uh, around in God's creation, um, and, you know, Jesus the, makes you, reminds you of what Jesus said in Luke 19.40, that if the disciples uh, weren't praising God, then the stones would cry out and praise God. Um, creation praises God constantly, and it's obvious. Um, what, about, what about the nighttime? It says that uh, nighttime, and night to night reveals knowledge. You ever thought about that? How does night reveal knowledge? Well, when it's night, you get to see beyond the earth, right? You get to see all of the stars, the entire universe. It's rather amazing. But it's a little bit deeper than that. A lot of these uh, physical things we experience in life, like day and night and eating food or drinking stuff, it all often points to a larger spiritual meaning. Um, Spurgeon said that the, the day bids us labor uh, during, and prepare for the last home, whereas night invites rest and makes us think of re our eternal rest in him. It also warns us to uh, escape from everlasting night. That's what Spurgeon said. Um, so day and night, it's communicating all the time these messages to us. Do we, do we hear these messages anymore? 
We might have heard them when we first believed, but do we still pay attention to that? Uh, Creation shows us these deep, eternal uh, truths. This, of course, reminds us of of Romans. So I want to read from Romans 1, 18 through 20. Uh, we, we see here the voice goes out to all the world, all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Uh, everyone, everyone hears the speech of God coming from His creation. Am I making sense? Okay, everyone hears that. And in fact, in Romans one eighteen, it's we all know this passage: "For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth." For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Again, God is screaming at us, screaming at us. And everyone knows this. By the way, it's not just Christians that know this. Here's a quote from Aristotle, okay? Aristotle was definitely not a Christian, never read the Bible. Um, he's the most famous philosopher, secular philosopher of all time. I mean, there's nobody that doesn't like Aristotle uh, in the secular world. This is what he said. Should a man live underground and there converse with the works of art and mechanism, and should afterwards be brought up into the open day and see the several glories of the heaven and earth, he would immediately pronounce them the works of a being as we define God to be. Are you with me? It's not just Christians that know this. Everyone knows this. Whether they suppress it, uh, the truth and unrighteousness or not, everyone knows this. Aristotle, foundation of Western thought, non-Christian Western thought even, uh, knew this. What else does it say in this passage? It says, uh, it says that uh, he has sent a t- set a tent, or a tabernacle tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. There's nothing hidden from its heat. What a powerful image. Okay, the sun is like a bridegroom, a strong bridegroom, full of joy going throughout the earth. Do you see the joy that comes across in creation? It's not just God's omnipotence or omniscience here that's being shown. Certainly, that's being shown. It's not even just his supreme engineering skill that's being shown, but his artistry. His artistry. This is the greatest. Creation is the greatest piece of art that's ever been created. And I need need to keep thinking about these things. Because we drift and we forget about all these things. <laughs> this is a really strange tangent I'm going to make right here. I apologize. Um, this, this past weekend, I was listening to uh, Van Morrison. I don't know if you, anybody's ever heard of Van Morrison. Uh, it's strange, strange dude. May have been a Christian, but it's really weird. But he's really, really weird. Um, uh, he has this song that I was listening to. It's called, And It Stoned Me. I don't know if anybody's heard of that song. It's, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Not sure you want to raise your hand for that one. Um, but uh, um, 
So the funny thing about Van Morrison is I think he was the only classic rock artist in the 60s and 70s who did not do drugs. Um, most, most people, you know, don't know that about him. He actually was totally against drugs. Um, what he was writing about there was a fishing trip in that song that he went with a, with a, with a childhood friend. He was writing about a, a fishing trip. And the experience to him was like being, like being stoned. And so it, it, that made me think, you know, in the Bible, it says don't be drunk, don't get drunk on wine, but get drunk on the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, that's what it says in the Bible, get drunk on the Holy Spirit. It says that. Maybe we should get stoned on creation. I don't know. Uh, it's an interesting metaphor. I mean, this is, this, this is, I mean, I really think that we should be stunned by the artistry, by the magnitude, by the awesomeness, by the speech that's pouring out on us from God and in creation. So that's sort of the first section, creation. Now, um, I'm sure most of you know or you've heard that the universe, you know, the physical laws of the universe depend on a series of constants, which I won't go into detail on the physics, that, uh, that have to be calibrated, you know, perfectly for life and to exist in the universe, right, for us to exist. And most people realize that it's really impossible that all this could have happened by random chance. I mean, even secular people kind of realize this as well. Um, and, and whatever people think of evolution, I guarantee you there's not a single scientist who would claim that they, uh, that they have any idea how life was created. Just no idea at all. One way that uh, people, modern people, sort of get around this is they'll argue, well, yes, it's totally impossible. Uh, it's it's un unbelievably unlikely, like one over, I don't know, 100 quadrillion zeros or something like that probability that this universe could have happened by random chance. But that's not a problem because there's actually a multiverse, right? There's actually infinitely many universes. Every possible universe exists somewhere. And we just happen to be in this one that life uh, occurred in. You know, so that's how people try to get around this. And I'm like, okay, so... Um, so you agree with me that this universe couldn't have happened by random chance, but I'm supposed to believe that infinitely many universes uh, happen by random chance. Not every uh, atheist goes along with this, though. And another popular thing you'll see, some of you have probably seen this on Facebook, is people will say, well, no, it's not the multiverse, it's God is the universe. Have you ever seen that? Maybe you, on Facebook sometimes you'll see people say, thank you, universe, I don't know if you've ever seen anybody. Well, okay, so people say that. Thank you, thank you, universe of people that I know. Um, the idea is that the, yes, okay, we, we agree that there's some intelligent design in the universe, but it's just the universe itself is just this God, which is, of course, very similar to what the Hebrew religions teach. Um, <clears throat> This sort of reminds me of a, sorry, one little tangent here. Um, I was reading a short science fiction story. Uh, it was about two guys were walking, and they were talking about the, the multiverse and how every universe that had ever happened had, you know, uh, would happen somewhere. So they, they were talking about how it's possible that around this corner there'll be a lion that's going to devour us. Right, just due to random chance. And so they walk around the corner, and of course there's a lion there that devours them. 
because they happen to be in that one universe. So um, just want to warn you as you walk out to the, uh, <laughs> you know, to your car, you know, you might be in that, you might be in that universe. Um, and of course, we all know that other philosophers are deists. So they acknowledge, okay, God created this wonderful thing. We have no problem with that, but he doesn't really have anything to say to us. This is where we come to the second section. God shows himself in his law and his word. So you don't, you don't just look outwardly to creation. You've got to look inwardly to the law to the, that God has put on your heart that shows you that also points to God. Um, now, what's interesting about this is in this section here. Let me, let me read the section before I, I get, keep going here. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is a great reward. Now, what's interesting in this section that you might not know, in the first section on creation, the word for God is El. El is the most generic uh, term for God in, in, in the Hebrew uh, part of the Bible. In this section, the name of God changes to Yahweh, which I find kind of interesting. That's, of course, the phrase, you know, I am who I am is how it's typically uh, translated the name of God revealed to Moses, the burning bush. Key word there is I. So he's not just some, you know, it's not, he's not just some mechanism by which creation happened. He's not just there creating stuff, but then doesn't want to have anything to do with us. He's a personal God. I, I am. He wants to inhabit our hearts. He wants to dwell with us. Jesus is the word became flesh. It's more than logic. God's word is more than just logic. It's personal. God's word in our hearts is, uh, is him speaking to us. Um, now, I just want to point out that most commentators would say at this point, they would stress that this section is not just talking about the law, but God's word in general and, and all the blessings and wonder of God's word. But I, want, I actually want to talk about the moral law here for a minute because I think a lot of people leave that behind really quickly. They're really quick when they read passages about how wonderful God's law is to say, well, that's talking about God's word is wonderful, and then they quickly get to the gospel and how wonderful the gospel is, which is certainly true. But I want to make a case for the law itself being, being wonderful. Um, Paul says that, of course he says, I mean, you know, we often kind of cringe at this, or some people cringe, they're like, law? Well, you know, law can't save us. What are you talking about? No, I'm not saying the law can save us. What does Paul says? say? He says the law can't save us, but what does he say after that? If there were a law that could save us, it would be this one. What does that mean? That means this law rocks. No, it can't save us, but it's wonderful. What does it say in Romans? Uh, it, 
uh, 2, uh, 14 and 15, we have an inward conscience. Even without the Bible, even if you haven't ever read the Bible, you have a conscience in you that points to God. Let me read from Romans 2, 14 and 15. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscious conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And then in Romans 1.32, though they know God's righteous decree, the law written on their hearts, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The law is written on our hearts. Whether you've read the scriptures or not, you have an inward conscience. Everyone has this that points us to God. So I'm going to take another one of my strange tangents. It occurs to me that I have too many of these tangents in here, so please don't throw tomatoes at me. I'm sorry. Uh, I just can't help myself. Um, Okay, so I want to talk about another philosopher, Immanuel Kant. Uh, He came at the end of the Enlightenment in the early 1800s. Uh, He wrote a famous book called The Critique of Pure Reason. And uh, in that book, he he argued that reason and logic that was based on empirical data uh, but had no dependence on human experience or emotion was inadequate for understanding reality. Does that make sense, what I just said? Let me say that again. So... um, Reason and logic that's based only on empirical data, that's pure reason that he was critiquing, had no, but had no dependence on human experience or emotion was inadequate. Are you with me? And there must be some other way of knowing, and he came up with this idea of transcendental idealism, that we can construct knowledge out of sense impressions upon which are imposed certain universal concepts certain, they called them a priori knowledge, uh, certain categories that we all can sort of assume and that help us give, uh, they sort of help give meaning beyond just data, beyond just sense experience. Am I making sense? I can only give you the cliff notes or else we'd be here like all day. And if I give you the cliff notes, it has the benefit of making you think that I know what I'm talking about, <laughs> which in fact, in fact I don't. But why do I bring him up? This is actually really important. Kant came up with these ideas of categories, abstract categories that give meaning apart from just what the data says, apart from science, okay? This is really important. This led to what's called critical theory, okay, where people started coming up with other categories that Kant didn't come up with, like, for example, Karl Marx, okay, father of, you know, socialism, Marxism, he, uh, for him, the category was class. Are you with me on this? It was class. Uh, for certain German thinkers in the 20th century, it was nationalism. That was the key thing that we all assume that gives meaning to everything else, and everything runs through that. Also, race. Some people have used race uh, as, as a category. Critical race theory comes from critical theory where we view uh, institutions of oppression as the, uh, against the oppressed as the fundamental category in, in, in Kantian language that kind of gives meaning to everyone else. Okay, you with me? 
Have I lost you? Or Okay. All right. So here's the point. I, I don't really want to get into all that. I'm just, I want to make, make the point to you that Kant is a superstar uh, philosopher according to secular uh, thinkers. Okay. He's the father of basically all of modern philosophy. Okay. Let me give you a quote from Kant, the father of modern philosophy. <laughs> This just blows my mind. He said, Two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and awe, the starry heavens above and the moral law within. I could, that, that could have been the title of my sermon. <laughs> right? Uh, Kahn actually also believed in sin. I don't think he was a Christian, though, because he had trouble with grace. He thought that grace was vicarious redemption. This is the way he called it. He didn't think that was fair that Christ would do all that for us, but... Anyway, um, so we're talking about two of the biggest philosophers, Aristotle and Kant, got the point that I'm trying to make here. Are you with me? Do you see how men are without excuse and everyone for thousands of years have known all this? It's just this little blip of history recently that people have kind of forgotten this. You see what I'm trying to say? I mean, these are superstars. Dan told me uh, I had to put a baseball metaphor in my talk. So, I don't know, I sort of thought about it, and I think Aristotle's like a pitcher pitching to David Hume after John Locke had walked. <laughs> David Hume hits a ball to center field where Immanuel Kant is the center fielder, and he grabs it at the wall. You can think about that, what that might mean. That's the best I can come up with. You can, you can see Dan for, for that. So there he goes. That, that's my little baseball Baseball metaphor. Okay, let's actually get to the text here. So God's word, God has put in us, God's law he's put in us. But here's the thing, the law is not something to be feared. Remember how I said the law rocks? The law is awesome. Let's read about this. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, them by, moreover, by, moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So what do we learn about that? God's word is infallible. It says it's perfect. His law, word, his, his law and his whole, all of his word is right. It's always clean. It's never corrupted. You can trust it. It says it'll endure forever. That was in there. It revives us. Some people translate that converts us. Converts, revives us. How does it do that? Well, we know the law leads us to knowledge of sin. It's a tutor that leads us to Christ. That's one thing we know, right? The law. Without the law, we wouldn't know about sin. We wouldn't see our need for Christ. We know that. But it's more than that. It makes us wise, it says there. It makes us joyful. It makes us see in darkness. That's what God's law can do for you. One big example for me personally, one thing that always brings me back to God when I'm drifting, love your enemies. Love your enemies. What a beautiful law, right? What a wonderful law. And it's funny because I, I'm a professor at Denison, and I interact with a lot of younger people, and I find a lot of them have trouble with that. Love your enemies, at least personally in their life. 
if I suggest that to them, they kind of like, well, no, forget that. Um, but at the same time, they would never deny that. Like nobody says, oh, love your enemies, that's stupid, at least out loud, right? Everybody knows that that sounds really good. It's, it's on people's hearts, right? Yet who can, who can possibly live up to that standard? That's the beauty of God's law. It's so wonderful. We all know it. We all fail at it. It's obvious. Are you with me? So that resonates with me, that particular law. We also learn in the Scriptures that the law warns us. I mean, what does Jesus say? If you hear my words but don't do them, you're like a house that's built on sand, right? Your life is going to collapse. It also says in there, the law rewards us. That was in there in that passage. The law... In keeping the law, there is great reward. It rewards us. What does it say in James 1.25? It says, if you are a, not just a, a listener, but a doer who acts, you'll be blessed in all that you do. Couldn't be clearer. Couldn't be clearer. Peter says, make every effort to add these things to your faith, and you will never fail. It's all over the Scripture. What does it say here? It says, it says, this, is, this one verse really strikes me here, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Have you ever heard anybody say Christianity is not about rules? Have you ever heard anybody say that? It's not about rules, right? It's about, it's about grace. No, that's not true. Christianity is not about condemnation. That's different. Christianity is about awesome rules. <laughs> rules that, what, taste like honey, Rules that taste like honey. Rules that make you happy. Some people don't like it when you use the word happy. You're supposed to use the word joyful, but I'm using both of them. Following God's law is better than the, what the world says. It makes you happy. It doesn't always seem like that, right? Does, does God's righteousness, does God's law always taste like honey to us? Hmm. Well, if it doesn't uh, taste like honey, then you should do what I've been trying to do for a long time and uh, continue to do every day. Go before the throne of grace. Go to his word. Ask him to help you believe that his word and his law and his gospel is better than sin. Because we don't believe that. We believe that sin is better than God sometimes. Maybe a lot of the time. At least deep down. Do you ever wonder why you sin? Why do you do anything? Because you think it's better to do that, right? But in fact, God in his way is better than sin. It's like honey, all right? Sin is like eating dirt. God's law is like, is like honey. We need to crowd to God to help uh, to, to help us believe this word that, I, that we're reading here, that his law is like honey. What does it say in Hebrews eleven six? Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And what are those rewards? He rewards people with himself and his word. And he shows you how good it all tastes. 
but we need to go to God to help us believe that. This could be a definition of sanctification. It's the process of more and more believing that God is better than sin. That's my definition of sanctification. Boy, it's, I wish it were that easy. It, <laughs> believing is hard for us, isn't it? We call ourselves believers, <laughs> but it's hard. It's hard. Now, the last section of this psalm, redemption, 12 through, verses 12 through 14. Let me read that. How am I doing on time, Dan? I, I didn't even think about it. Am I okay? All right. Redemption. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So this is the third part of this gospel tract for the Old Testament, right? God screams to us in creation that he's there. We know this. Personally, Yahweh comes to us, puts his law on our hearts so that we know right and wrong. We know uh, God's personal word, the logos, in our hearts. We know that all of these rules are true and awesome. But of course, what's the problem? We're sinners. That's the key point. We know, I mean, we know that his law is better, but we can't keep it. We fail, we sin. Who could doubt this? This is actually something that gives me faith when I think about the Bible says that we're sinners. That actually, I rejoice in that. Do you know why? Because it's so freaking true. Who could doubt that? Look at your heart, you're a sinner. Who could possibly doubt that? Now, this is, this is not something that everyone knows, like Aristotle. <laughs> this is something I think, I believe, that requires the Holy Spirit to convict you of, for sure. You might believe that God's there, and, that his, and you might be like Kant and believe that his law shows that God is there, and it's a great law, and it's awesome, but we can just do pretty well with that, and we'll be good. You know, it's that knowing that you're actually a sinner, it's funny... Um, you know, you know that illustration where you have like water and you do a little drop of blood in it and it makes the whole water red? You know that you've heard that illustration, that Christian illustration about, about sin, about how just a drop of sin spoils the whole thing, right? I don't know if you anybody heard that? You've heard that, right? I hate that illustration. I hate that illustration because it's not a freaking little drop for me. Okay, it's just a big bucket of sludge that I, I poured in that water. And I could go in more into Romans if you want to read about that. Romans 2, we're sinners. And what do we need? What does it say in this passage? We need to be cleansed from hidden faults. We need to be cleansed. We need to be kept from presumptuous sin. If not for God, we're going to do presumptuous sins, period. We need to cry out that we're kept from that. Did you know, I, I found this out just reading about this this weekend, the Jewish thinkers of Christ's day thought that presumptuous sins were unforgivable. They kind of divided up into like sins that you weren't aware of really, or little sins, and then they're presumptuous sins. Thank God that's not true, because my life is full of presumptuous sins. 
And what does it say? It says, we need a redeemer. That's the end of the song, right? Oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What's he thinking of there? Probably thinking of the kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament, the relative that would rescue another relative and buy them out from slavery or bankruptcy, would redeem them. Are you with me? The kinsman uh, redeemer. That's really a picture of some serious problems, right? Bankruptcy uh, and your, you, you, need, you need someone in your family to pay for that for on, on, on your behalf. That's what we need so desperately. We, we are have serious problems with our sin. We need a redeemer, and we have that. Thank God. There's no condemnation. So to sort of wrap this up, I kind of want to summarize what have we been talking about. God's creation is screaming at us, and, it, and, and this is so obvious that even Aristotle and Kant could see this. Everyone can see this. In fact, we know that everyone sees this. The Bible tells us that everyone knows that creation declares the glory of God. Are you with me? We also know that God puts his law in everyone's hearts, and everyone knows this, Right? Everyone has a conscience. Everyone knows that God put it there. And I thank God that the Spirit has shown me what a sinner I am, how I drift from God, all of my presumptuous sins. Thank God that I have a Redeemer. Thank God that we have a Redeemer. You see how this leads you to the gospel? Psalm 19, see why I call it a gospel track. This is, this is how I came to faith. I know people come to faith in different ways, but this is the kind of thing that I think about. And I go back to this, how wonderful and clear God's creation is, how clear his word is in my heart that had to be put there by God. Nothing makes sense without it. How clear it is that I'm a sinner. It's so obvious. This really helps me in my doubt, these kind of, this kind of thinking. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray that these things would penetrate our hearts, as it did the psalmist. I mean, the psalmist is pretty pumped up about God, right, in this psalm. I mean, you know, his words are like honey. I pray that that would be, it would be like that for us. Lord Jesus, I just pray for us that we would be able to taste your word, taste creation, know how wonderful it is, how much better you are than sin. I pray that you would reward us with that honey. I pray that you would help us to believe that you taste like honey, that you're worth more than even very fine gold. I pray you would overwhelm us with how much we needed you, how much we have disobeyed your law, how much we need grace. Thank you that there's no condemnation in Christ. But Lord, I pray that we would realize that the law for the Christian is not something to be feared. I pray that it would be something to be followed, that we'd be excited about it, that we'd understand it makes us happy. It really does. 
Lord, help keep out the lies that Satan gives us, that the law is burdensome, that God's truth, God's commands as precepts are somehow burdensome. They're freeing. They fill us with joy and wisdom. They make our lives better. I pray we'd all know this in Christ's name. Amen.